The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome back to the Bike Radar Podcast with me, George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar. You're tuning in to Episode 3 in our training series with Wahoo Fitness. Having opened with a jargon buster on episode one, we moved on to fitness testing on episode two. Today, we're honing in on training zones. Joining me for the ride once again is Matt Cassin, Wahoo's principal sports scientist. And for this episode, we've also drafted an extra special guest, and that's Nate Wilson, the performance manager over at the EF Education Easy Post Men's World Tour team. We'll talk through each of the training zones and also use our time with Nate to dig deeper into how the pros train. If you haven't already, then make sure you listen to the first couple of episodes in this series, but we'll also be back with another two episodes after this one. Now, let's get into the chat with Mac and Nate. Welcome back for episode three in our training series with Wahoo Fitness. Mac, it's lovely to see you again. How's things? Things are good. Excited for episode number three here. We've got a guest who I'm excited to to hear more from. We have got a guest. So in episodes one and two, as you and me, Mac, which is fantastic. But for episode three, we've got Nate Wilson. Nate, great to have you on the podcast. First, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, thanks for having me. My role at EF, it's pretty multifaceted. I've got a few main responsibilities. One is to be, we call it a trainer, mostly in the team, but a coach to a handful of individual riders. I've been with the team four years now, and it'll kind of vary from coaching five to seven riders each year, depending on how we distribute the roster amongst the other trainers. Then I'm also responsible for sort of managing and running all the training camps. I'll work together with other members of kind of our 
broader performance team on building up the concepts of the camp, but it's my job to kind of see them through to execution and make sure they run smooth on the ground. So some of that's kind of a coaching role and some of it's almost more of a logistical role, making sure that all the components are there, that things can go well. So I actually really enjoy that because it forces me to combine the more coaching sports science things and just real world stuff to make it work. And then the other part is just working with the other members of the performance team, like other coaches, our sport medical team, our physiotherapists for any sort of issues that come up with the riders or like working with the sports directors about analyzing the rider fitness and helping pick rosters for races and set targets that way. Brilliant. Well, it sounds like you'll have a ton of fantastic experience and insight that you can take from the pro world and share with the rest of us for the rest of us to learn from, combined with Max's experience at Wahoo Fitness. So to set the scene, we started this series with our jargon buster. We covered 10 key training terms. And in last week's episode, we moved on to fitness testing, which is definitely a key listen if you want to find out how to test your fitness in order to then set your training zones, which is the focus of today's episode. So we're going to go deep on training zones, but let's start with the basics with you, Matt. Can you just recap on exactly what training zones are and actually why do they matter? What are the benefits to riders in terms of using training zones? Yeah, so training zones are a really great way to sort of break down a workout or, or prescribe a workout. You have very specific energy systems that are targeted from different training zones. So you can go out and prescribe exact workout at an exact set of intervals. Um, and you can do that using power. Um, that's probably the more common these days with how available power meters are. You can also have heart rate training zones that don't necessarily match up with the power zones. And we'll get into that a bit later. And then you can also have pace-based power zones, and that more applies for swimming and running. But since those don't have a power meter you can accurately use for either of those two sports, you want to set your training intensity off of speed. And again, all of those zones are relative to your capacity for that given task. And that's, again, that comes down to the best way to do that. And the only accurate way to do that is with a fitness test. We've mentioned it again there. I, I would reiterate for anyone listening to this who wants to set their training zone and use training zones to be as efficient as possible on the bike in terms of the time that you have available to train, definitely go back and listen to episode two in this series on fitness testing. But let's move on to the specific zones. There are various models that you can use. You've mentioned, Mac, that you can use pacing zones or power zones and heart rate zones. We're going to focus primarily on power zones. And even within that, there are different models that you can use. What's the model that Wahoo Fitness uses and how many zones are there? Yeah, so Wahoo uh, uses seven power zones, and then we have five heart rate zones. Again, there is a bit of a difference between uh, how your heart responds to the thing and, and power being an instantaneous measure of, of your work. Heart rate's a delayed response, so it's not as accurate for at least following prescribed intervals. It can be challenging to do that, and it also really doesn't have a difference at the highest zones. So the the two highest intensity zones, heart rate really isn't a factor there because you're going above your aerobic ceiling. And that's essentially what your heart rate's trying to do is trying to move oxygen around. So once you get to energy systems where that's oxygen isn't really being used, the heart rate component isn't as significant. But for the power zones, they range starting at the low end from recovery intensity. Zone two is then endurance, which a lot of people refer to as base. Uh, you have tempo, which is probably what most people do when they say they're going to go ride endurance. They end up riding harder and actually riding tempo, which is not great. And we talked about that last time. You then have threshold, which is that, again, long sustained power output value that all those 
lower intensities are based off of. And then what Wahoo does differently than some of the more traditional power-based zones is the next five zones, so VO2 max, anaerobic capacity, neuromuscular power, those all use their own anchor point metric. So FTP is the metric for threshold and the the intensities below that, so zones one through four. Just knowing how energy systems work, that there's a lot, lot of variation between individuals with the same FTP. And so VO2 max, those intervals for us, those power intervals are based off of your maximal aerobic power. That zone six anaerobic capacity is based off of your anaerobic capacity. You know, some people have a really big reservoir of energy and they can crush out some one minute, two minute steep climbs and other people not so much. Um, and then neuromuscular is just that instantaneous peak power, but it can also be, you know, maximum velocity. So super high cadence or maximum torque. So really like rolling from a really big gear from a stop. So we spoke last time about how a fitness test is really key to set the zones and how you use the data that you get out of a fitness test to effectively achieve a range that you need to sit in for each particular zone. Can you talk about how those ranges vary from one individual to the next and the idea of um, having both a, an upper limit and a lower limit to each zone? Yeah. So the the main reason you have a, a range for these targets is because the, you know, human physiology is a bit of a, a continuum and it's never an exact power output. It gives you an exact specific physiological output that doing two watts more all of a sudden drastically changes that. Um, it's also just, unless you're on a smart trainer in erg mode with the, the trainer dictating the resistance, it's really difficult to ride in an exact power. So riding in a zone two endurance, there's a range there where the physiological demands are more on the aerobic side, but you have some wiggle room to go a bit higher, a bit lower. So that's really where the cutoff points, high and low, come in. Now for, for individuals, really one through recovery zone and endurance zone are pretty much the same for everyone. Tempo you can get with lactate testing in a lab, you can get some more clarity there where like tempo actually, where you shift from endurance to tempo. But generally speaking, that's pretty similar. And same thing with, with threshold. And it really is those five upper zones that really can differentiate between individuals, especially from the stuff that we've looked into in, in our results and studies that basically gender and age do have an impact there. So two people could have the same FTP value. And so those lower four zones would pretty much be identical. But if one of them's a bit older, a bit smaller, then their ability for a VO2 max effort or anaerobic effort or their peak sprint power is probably going to be lower. And so those metrics will differ quite significantly. And we've seen instances where, you know, there's a big we have nice little bell curve graphs of all of these um, metrics, and there's a lot of crossover where there are people who have a really high maximal aerobic power that is in some cases higher proportional to their FTP than some people's anaerobic capacity. And again, that's just how humans are. We're all different. We all have trained for different things. We all have base genetics that play a role there. So when you get into those higher intensities, there is a lot of individual variation. Great. Well, we'll come back to you in a second, Mac, in terms of understanding why a particular rider might try and spend time in, in each of the, the seven zones that you use at YU Fitness. But Nate, before we were recording, we asked you what the, the different zones are that Team EF Education first use. And you said that actually primarily you use a five zone model and that also it can vary from one rider to the next in terms of the program that you prescribe. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you don't use the same seven zone model as uh, what Max described? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say 
effectively, we probably do use the same seven zone model because we prescribe training with efforts that get after those intensities, you know, those anaerobic intensities and those neuromuscular intensities. Most of the athletes will at some point have intervals prescribed to them that work that zone. So some of it's also maybe just a nomenclature thing, but for the most part with athletes I work with, I work with a five zone system that's just almost a bit, because for me, it's a bit simpler to wrap my head around sometimes. And then I feel like above sort of the max aerobic power zone or VO2 max, depending on different people using different terms, then we'll go a lot more just based on like RPE, or I might still set a range off of a different anchor point. Like if we're doing one minute efforts and we're, if we're doing six of them, like six times one minute on three minutes off, I'm trying to get after the idea that we're training anaerobic power, but then, so I might just be like, okay, what's their best one minute effort? Let's aim for doing six reps at 10% below that. But also I would usually do it a bit more RPE based. So it's probably, I'm probably selling it a bit wrong if I say we only use five zones because there's definitely still those six times one minutes is a different zone than four times 12 seconds sprints and also a different zone than five times two minutes on two minutes off. So it's like, I think we're definitely working in those sort of same three zones in terms of what we're trying to stimulate, just different nomenclature. So Matt, to come back to you, can you talk us through each of the seven zones and why someone might choose to spend time in a particular zone? What's the training intent or what's the physiological intent or benefit that you're trying to achieve in each of the seven zones? Yeah. So um, again, starting at the the lower end recovery, that is largely to do with increased blood flow and circulation. Recovery spins are, are a really great tool. I think we talked about that in the first episode that a sure sign you're doing structured training is if you're actually doing recovery spins. The training intent there is literally to recover from harder efforts. So whether that's between intervals, you're riding so you can kind of recharge and be able to do another hard effort, or it's a day where you're just trying to keep your legs moving, keep blood circulating, but you're not trying to add any stress to your system. So you're not actively aiming for additional stimulus. You can have instances where you use recovery as a training tool. And that's more like if you're doing fasted rides in the morning, you want to keep the intensity low because that's when your fat oxidation is the highest. So you really, until you are used to doing that, you want to stay in that recovery zone. But generally speaking, recovery, the training intent is to recover. When you get to the next zone up endurance, that's really focused on the nerdy term is mitochondrial biogenesis. You're trying to get your muscles to have more mitochondria in them that use oxygen to produce power. You also get some good extra capillaries in that sort of intensity. And there's a really great old myth about capillaries that I'm excited to talk about in the last episode of this. But anyway, endurance, the goal is really to you know increase your capacity to use oxygen for lower intensity efforts, improve your lactate clearance, stuff like that. Tempo is, it's a gray area and there is, there are certain training zones that actually call tempo like the gray zone, just because it's harder than endurance, but it's not quite at threshold. So you need to have a lot of intent when you're using, when you're going out for that zone. The most beneficial thing from my opinion for that is improving muscular endurance. So your muscles ability to contract like very deep into a, a long ride. And that's certainly, um, something I'm excited to hear Nate's view on because the the demands of a pro rider, it definitely depends on their program and what their job is at a given race. Quickly going to threshold, that's really the intensity where you're you're hitting a, a 
tipping point where your body's producing more lactate than it can clear. Your breathing rate starts to increase. It's a very, you get a lot of um, catecholamine response. So you get your body releasing some different hormones, chemicals around that intensity. And that's, it's difficult, but it's a good one to, again, to bump up your threshold. You need to have some sort of riding at threshold power. You get into the the top three and you're looking more at, you're really getting into anaerobic energy sources. So the next one is VO2 max or maximal aerobic power. But to do those efforts, you have to go well above threshold. And so there's always going to be an anaerobic component there. But the goal of those efforts is to increase your aerobic ceiling. So maybe that's not necessarily increasing your VO2 max in terms of oxygen, but you can improve your efficiency at VO2 max. So you're putting out more power with the same oxygen. Your threshold can only get so close to your VO2 max. So a lot of people can plateau if they're just going for threshold because they're not moving that ceiling up high enough. Anaerobic capacity, that's really a two-part one. It's trying to increase, I like to think of it like a like a big battery and you can dump it out really quickly and you need to recharge it before you can use it again. And there are some people with a really large battery, but maybe it's slow to recharge or, or vice versa. Um, so that hitting those efforts are again, training to increase the size of that battery or increase your ability to recharge that battery. And then lastly, neuromuscular, that's really looking at peak contraction, whether that's velocity or force for torque. Now, everyone's best sprint, absolute sprint power is going to be at a happy medium of those where it's a high cadence, but high force. You're not going to hit your your peak power at 20 RPM and you're not going to hit it at 250 RPM. But you can train that neuromuscular system by doing super big gear efforts or super small gear efforts. And again, all of these have different how your body reacts to them varies quite a bit and how you need to structure them to be able to hit the targets that you have and then recover adequately is is kind of the nuances of of coaching what i'll do actually is i'll, I'll make sure that we put the uh, the link to our article on training zones on bike radar into the show notes for this podcast because that also includes where relevant the percentage of threshold power the range for each of the relevant zones and also the, the typical duration that you can expect to spend in each zone where relevant but to take this back to the start and coming to you nate this all starts with a fitness test as i said at, at, at the top we covered that last time but a question that we had from a reader is how often one should set training zones is it, is it a case of setting and forgetting so coming to you nate how often do ef riders retest and reset training zones is it something that you do on a stock basis throughout the season or does it depend on the particular rider and their goals and aspirations yeah i'd say the big thing in terms of how often we set zones would be you're ideally you're trying to set zones kind of as soon as they're changing to a significant degree like you always want to be training in the right area so you're creating the right internal stimulus and if at some point the fitness changes significantly enough the zones need to shift so that you're still creating the same stimulus you think you are with whatever term you're saying you're doing but then as far as how often you test to know whether you need to shift those zones. I think it all comes down to the data you have. And so sometimes we're getting really good data from races that's pretty representative of maximal efforts. And, you know, you can confirm that by seeing the heart rate, confirm it by looking at what was happening in the race. Like if it wasn't, there's certain race profiles where it's not very hard for two or three hours and then one 20 minute climb on one hand, you can say, oh, well, you know, it's in a race. There's a bit of other stuff going on. Maybe it wasn't perfect pacing, but also like you have a competitive environment. The adrenaline response is totally different. Like most of our athletes are going to come closer to their true max capacity 
in that scenario than in a 20 minute test they do on their own in training. So for us, like how often we do training comes down to the data we have. If it's winter time, then usually we need to do a test, see where they are. If they're racing and they haven't been doing a lot of max efforts, or it's just that's their role, they're not really reaching, they have jobs early in the race, they're not like having these sort of really max efforts, then maybe we'll create one every three months or something. But I think for me, I usually try and look at a few other variables to see, to try and get an idea of if I think the training zones are shifting before doing a test to find out. So I'd say we, we almost try and test to the sort of minimum necessary because I think if they're racing 60 or 70 days a year, we want to save the maximal efforts for in the races and kind of only do them in training if it's truly productive. You mentioned, Nate, that you often, or I think you always test riders in the off-season or after the off-season at the first training camp of the year, just as out of personal interest. Can that be quite revealing as to perhaps who's had a more active off-season and who's had a more, say, relaxed off-season or a more uh, sociable approach to the off-season, the results that you see in that first test? Yeah, sure. But I mean, you you also always know basically already, you know? I mean, the testing is is useful, but we have so much data and so many of these guys, I mean, by the time they're 27, 28, 29, also a lot, some of their absolute levels really aren't changing that much. It turns into more the details of like, what are you being limited in, in terms of fatigue? But that's the thing. Some of the guys, their season might've ended 15th of September and they were already back on the bike in 15th of October. And we have our first camp in the first week of December and they're already on the bike for six weeks. And you just know, okay, well, just logically, this person's going to be in pretty decent shape. And another guy ended his season 15th of October, started back on the bike 15th November, and was on the bike two weeks before the camp. And yeah, that person's not going to be in great shape. Well, Mac, we'll come to you because we th this is something we spoke about briefly in episode one, but we've had another reader question into the podcast inbox, which actually, if you do have any questions, you can email us at podcast at bikeradar.com. But this one specifically is about the relationship between heart rate and power. So can you talk a bit more about that relationship? Because we focus primarily on power zones here, but definitely keen to understand where heart rate fits in. Heart rate is really a response to what you have done. Power is like instantaneous. As soon as you push down on the pedals, you can see a spike in power. Now your heart rate is essentially responding to, it's a feedback loop. So it's looking at what are the, basically the cat call means, what are the chemicals going on in your blood? What's the, the pr like the pressure as your heart beats harder, it increases your blood pressure. That's a feedback loop to say, okay, maybe I need a pump even harder. There's a lot of factors in there of, of your, your body's trying to see what's going on and then react by changing your heart rate. You start to go harder, you're running out of oxygen in your legs. So your depleted blood gets back to your, your heart. There's different receptors in there saying, oh no, we need more oxygen down there. So it starts beating faster. You start breathing harder. So heart rate's really a delayed response. So it's really beneficial for training when you're talking about long steady state efforts of making sure you're, you're nailing the right intensity because it is at the lower intensities quite linear um, between power and heart rate. As you increase your effort, your heart rate will, you'll have a pretty standard linear trend for yourself. Now everyone's heart rates are different. I know for myself, I've got a hummingbird heart rate and my heart rate zones, like my upper zone two was, was like 162 beats per minute, which for some people that's that's like peaking out near their threshold. So there is there is 
variability between individuals. And that's why, again, the the training zones for heart rate are based off of a percentage of that sort of max sustained heart rate. And again, that's different than just max heart rate because some people, again, you can have be at different functional capacities of your max. Some people can sit at 98% of their max for a really long time. And some people can only sit at like 80, 80% of their max. I wanted to add on heart rate too. I mean, because I, I really like it. We find we find it really useful, especially for the zones threshold and below, or pretty much only for the zones threshold and below, except for it can be a really nice indicator of fatigue of like knowing where someone's max heart rate is in relation to like their highest max. That tells us a lot. But like, I think Max totally right about like, it's a delayed response. Like I always kind of feel like I think about it as also it tells you how hard you're working for what you're getting out, like power is your output. And like Max said, it's instantaneous. And then heart rate's kind of the internal cost. You might always do 200 Watts, but how hard is it for you today to do 200 Watts? Is it 140 beats hard? Is it 150 beats hard? Because for us, the thing that's super useful about heart rate as a check is like we have a lot of riders moving between sea level and altitude and temperatures changing. And as soon as you add in those extra factors, your power zones realistically shift. You know, the same wattage is going to have a different internal stimulus at altitude as it is at sea level or in 30 centigrade compared to 15 centigrade. But heart rate tells us a bit, like Max said, what the response is. Like, how hard are you working on this day to produce that output and how much does it need to shift? So in a previous episode, Max said how that for the vast majority, if not all riders that he has coached and coaches that he insists on using both heart rate and power. Is that a rule that you have in place in the team? Do you need all of that data from every rider or do some riders take a different approach than others? Yeah, you need all of that data. I mean, it's a roster of 30 riders and everyone's an adult, so everyone's going to take their own uh, philosophy on how they tie their shoelaces at some point. But so not everybody has the heart rate strap on every day, but yeah, that's the that's the goal. That leads me quite nicely onto my next question, actually, because we hear a lot in the media about how training methods and training knowledge specifically has advanced a lot in the pro peloton over the last 10 years, say. So firstly, from your perspective, being in the team and working with riders day in, day out, is is that true? Is there tons more knowledge now than there was a decade ago? But specifically, how has that changed how you and riders use training zones and where they spend most of their time on the bike? Yeah, I think it's probably true. I mean, it's tough because, you know, research has always been being done and knowledge is always trying to be expanded. I think probably one of the big things that has changed is the degree to which that information is accessible. So partially, I don't know if there's necessarily more knowledge. I mean, there probably is, but just to play devil's advocate, I'm not 100% sure there is. But the degree to which it's like in the media or like super accessible or that we all know about it or that we listen to podcasts like this, I feel like that has skyrocketed in the past 10 years. So I think there's a ton more information available, which in a lot of ways is great. I think you hear about more differing ideas. So you hear about more trial and errors and then you hear about more of what's working. And I think over time, that'll all serve as like one big funnel to sort of be like, well, is there a consensus on like what things work and what things don't work. Cause I think for better or worse, it's always like an ongoing experiment and we have enough data points to try and short-term read some responses and have races to see short-term our performances shifting. But I, I think the way it's impacted it the most is yeah, in some ways we can measure things better. We can track things better. 
so we can try and say like, is this working? How individual does it need to be? We maybe know more about what possible tools to use are. But I think on the other hand, like the the ocean just feels like it's gotten a lot bigger. So like sort of the the number of tools you are aware of that you could employ, you know, whether it's a certain training model, like, oh, we're going to train more polarized and we're never going to do tempo. You know, you're only going to train in this sort of like, you're either going really hard or you're going really easy. And we're chasing this certain intensity distribution, or we're going to go the other direction. Like we're training a lot more in like a sort of pyramidal sort of model, like building everything around the threshold and kind of like growing up, like adding a little bit more intensity, like as you get farther and farther down the line in terms of the season, it almost just feels like there's so many options you're aware of that at some point you have to pick and also pick for long enough to try and make a decision like, is this working? Is it not working? And not be jumping around too many different places. So I think in some ways, things have gotten easier and in some ways they've gotten harder. More more knowledge doesn't always make it easier. (laughs) At least for me, I get overwhelmed. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That point, Nate, about the accessibility of data and the accessibility of knowledge, even if there is potentially too much of it at times, and also the the accessibility of power meters, whether that's through more affordable power meters on the bike or the accessibility of smart trainers. Do you think that that has contributed to the fact that riders are entering the world tour at younger and younger ages because they have access to power and knowledge from a far younger age? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of guys entering the world tour with less low-hanging fruit remaining for them to improve on compared to 10 years ago because i think there's so much information out there about nutrition about training methodologies even just coaches practicing those methodologies that i think it's not very strange for guys at 16 17 18 years old to have a huge amount of knowledge i I think the tricky thing is like how to fit all those pieces together i think that's getting to be like where you need to be correct or like where like why a good coach is really a really good coach is like they're able to see like every tool on the tool table and be like okay well like they all have their value and their purpose but also we can only work with like three or four at once without having sort of a call it contamination effect for lack of a better term and like which ones are we going to pick and like having the confidence to leave certain things on the side because it's the same thing with just like we all know like, okay, there's a bunch of value in gym work. Okay, we should lift heavy, but we should also do plyos and like, you know, your nutrition, you should you should track it. You know, maybe there should be periods where you do low carb, but you also got to train your gut super high carb and, you know, what's your bicarbonate protocol? And I think people are getting that information, 
but it, it's all like a piece of the puzzle. So that I think the thing that now people come into the world tour with is they might have have that vocabulary built up and have had some experience, but then what they still lack is like how to fit it all together into sort of like a realistic daily practice. Well, in order to help some of our listeners fit all of this together, Mac, I wanted you to ask about something you mentioned earlier, which is the fact that a lot of people spend too much time at tempo thinking they're riding at endurance. So why is that? And actually, what are the drawbacks from that? How should people be spending their time? And I appreciate it's a very vague, generic question, but how should an everyday rider be spending their time when it comes to selecting training zones? Yeah. So in terms of what they're like selecting for that day to do as a workout, like generally speaking, like cycling is an endurance sport and, and yes, for time crunched people, there's a lot of value to high intensity training. There's no question that if you only have two hours a week, like you're better spent doing higher intensity at the end of the day, though, cycling is an endurance based sport and you need that basically endurance intensity to get that. I think the reason that people it's the whole people think like more is more and more is always better. So riding, like I know for myself, whatever my zone two was, I aimed for the absolute top of it. I tried to be like within one watt of going outside of zone two because I was like, well, oh no, this is my zone two. If I ride at more power, then I'm getting better that way. And in, in reality, if I could go back to 17 year old me, I'd, I'd have a stern talking to and that kid had a lot to learn. But I think the notion of just always doing a bit more, pushing a bit harder, it's the same reason that, you know, like we talked about, sweet spot can be such a tricky format to follow because you're kind of trying to ride that knife's edge. If you've miscalculated what your FTP is, you can really, you know, go over that point. And I think the biggest issue with tempo for the average person for training is it just adds excess fatigue without actually doing any of the real mitochondrial biogenesis that you you want as you increase your intensity you're using more carbohydrate as fuel so really to get like the optimal increase in mitochondria you want your mitochondria to be using as much fat as possible and that means a lower intensity that's not to say go all the way down to 20 percent of your threshold and stay there because you're not having enough energy output to really chain train anything there but i think people tend to ride tempo because they want more it's not threshold it's not even sweet spot. Like it's not that hard and it's an intensity that you can do for a long time. And that's why it can be problematic because in the moment you can do it for several hours, but you're just adding more stress, more fatigue to your system without really, if you were supposed to go out and do base training, you didn't really hit that stimulus you were going for, but you're more tired after the fact. Now I know with, and Nate can speak to this more, but you know, there are certain riders on pro teams like i mean their job on the in the pro peloton is to ride at the front and sure those guys are riding at three you know 330 watts but that's tempo for them like their job is to sort of be there all day so that's a it can be it can be a useful training intensity but it needs to be done with a lot of purpose and intent that's a that's a great question and definitely keen to hear more of nate's thoughts there in terms of how individual riders who have def very different jobs and very different attributes use their training zones in training to prepare themselves for the day job on race day? Yeah, I think Mac hit it on the head. There's definitely a value to it, and it can be relatively specific to some of our riders, the demands of their jobs. If they're going to be riding on the front chasing breakaways for long stints, if they're going to be in breakaways for long stints, they're going to spend a lot of time in tempo, and it makes a fair amount of sense to do a bit of tempo in training. I think 
the big thing is also what Max said of like, what are you trying to stimulate? Like if you're trying to build endurance, tempo's easy enough, you can do a lot of it, but it's also probably hard enough that it's not actually creating that internal stimulus to the same degree that riding easier is. So you actually might be kind of missing the stimulus, but not really hitting another one, you know, it's not. And that's kind of the whole polarized model is like, it's not really hard enough to move the needle on your top end, but it's not really easy enough to sort of like improve that whole aerobic efficiency and fat utilization and just overall factors that feed into endurance. So I think for us, we, we definitely feel like there's value in using tempo now and then, and sometimes in some big blocks, like maybe two, three days in a row where you just do like a lot of tempo each day. Cause I think there's kind of a big strength building effect, both physical and mental. But I think we're going more the direction of a lot of the training, not spending too much time in that zone because it doesn't really create a stimulus that we need. And when we look at the breakdown of the races, if you're riding in the pack and then trying to like race in the final for the results, it depends for sure on the profile. Like if you have three 30 minute climbs in a grand tour stage, you're going to do like at least two of those climbs pretty much solidly in tempo. And the third one might be above tempo, or it might be that the fatigue's high enough that everyone's just kind of dieseling away at the top of their tempo zone. So I definitely think we see value in it as like a tool we can use in the training we prescribe. But I think we're getting more away from it in terms of that being like the meat of the training. Because it also has such an impact on like, what's the other kind of training you're trying to do? Like if you're trying to carry like, a good vo2 max session once a week or like be in a time where you're like you're doing higher intensity or it's between races i don't know if it really gives you a stimulus that's beneficial but it does create a fair amount of fatigue mac is that idea of really understanding what you want to achieve from your training at, at the heart of this so in the previous episode when we were talking about fitness testing you talked us through wahoo's 4dp test and how that tests different parts of your fitness through from a top end sprint to FTP and I think there are, there are four factors that make up that test but is it really key for someone to understand well firstly what are their benchmarks in each of that area and then secondly what are they aiming towards and then thirdly how do they build their training plan in order to improve in their specific area yeah I, I I do think you know having a goal knowing what you're going after is really important if not just to to give you something to shoot for. Like it's one thing to just say, oh, I'm going to start riding again. Like the point of a structured training is a structured training plan is get you from A to B as fit as possible for, for what you're trying to do. Now, again, some events people might be training for, like maybe they'll never do a maximal sprint during that event that they're training for, but you kind of need to differentiate what makes good training stimulus versus what are the demands of the event. You can still train towards something where you're going to be riding a lot of long climbs and it's mainly going to be tempo threshold, you can still get training benefit by doing sprints or anaerobic capacity work. So knowing what those levels are is important for, for structuring the training. I also think it's significant to have a, a wider view of the, like your profile as an individual because that can dictate what you should be doing. Like if you're, again, the climbing thing, you're going to want a high threshold. But if you find that your maximal aerobic power really is only like 8% higher than your functional threshold power, your, your FTP is not going to go up until that maximal aerobic power is increased. So that person, even though the demands, what they're training for is a lot of threshold work, we can see, okay, you're actually severely limited by maximal aerobic power here. So we need to focus on that. I always kind of like to think about like a target event is 
like a, a stadium at the center of a city and you and your friend are on one's on the east side one's on the west side you're both trying to get to the same stadium but if you both say i'm gonna go due west for 20 miles one of you is going in the right direction and the other one's going in the same direction but they're not moving towards their actual destination so having that clear understanding of the starting point is really significant i think nate brought it up and and made a really good point like when you look at so the writers he works with, like, okay, maybe fresh 20-minute power really doesn't matter too much. What they want to see is that fit, like power after fatigue. And so again, that's like that's a type of test that is very specific, but it's the most applicable. I think that's this is sort of a side tangent, but I've always think that's one of the the flaws with a lot of studies out there that look at, you know, different training methodologies, like the tests, the metrics that they're using to track change just aren't relevant. Like if they're using, you know, VO2 max for as the before and after test for for training that really doesn't do much for VO2 max, like it's, it's a metric that's easy to track. So that's why it's done before and after. But if it's not really applicable to what's going on, like it's not that handy. It's sort of be like, how does your hand grip strength change after three weeks of VO2 intervals. Like, sure, that's a very robustly understood metric of grip strength, and it's used in thousands and thousands of studies, but it's not applicable to what you're trying to do or trying to see what changes. So again, having that intent and understanding what you're trying to change is important in determining what type of testing you should be doing for a capacity standpoint. But then just having an overall profile view of yourself is really good just to know okay, here's where I need to put work in and here's where I can, I'm pretty good. So I don't need to focus as much on that. Nate, I wanted to come back to you because something that you mentioned earlier, which Max also mentioned is the polarized approach to training and a simplified model that uses polarized zones effectively. I think it's three zones, but I'm sure you guys will be able to correct me if I'm wrong. But what is a polarized approach and why might that be beneficial? Because it's something that I feel I hear more about these days and I think more riders are taken on board. I think also a lot of people are using polarized and meaning a different thing. You know, some people use polarized really to just mean an intensity distribution in terms of like their training plan and their week, which they might mean 80% low intensity, 20% high intensity, or even 90% low, 10% high. I think it's important to mark it's pretty established now. That's not time and zones. That's sort of sessions in the block. So, you know, 20% would be two days with high intensity in a 10 day period. But the other is the, yeah, the zone system or the model. So I think a lot of people working with a more polarized system are working with a three zone model where you have sort of, it's kind of based off of the intensity domains, which is low, moderate, and severe intensity exercise. So, and those are based often off of your first and second threshold. Both can be done on lactate and ventilatory testing. So your first zone is everything below the first threshold. Your second zone is everything between the first and the second threshold. And then the third zone is everything above. The nice thing about it is it's going to be, if you, if you drive the testing that way, those zones are going to fall sort of in different places based on an individual's physiology even from the either from the lactate data or the ventilatory data if you do like a gas exchange testing and then i i think the philosophy is really geared around like that zone 2 not doing a lot for you you know and you're either going easy in zone 1 or you're going hard in zone 3 but i mean i think the big thing that's interesting is like so many people say polarized or like i believe in polarized training but they might mean like 
10 different things by it. You know, some people might mean a polarized intensity distribution where they might train. I mean, I think you can train with a seven zone model and go for a polarized intensity distribution, and that might be really useful. They might mean that they train when they train in zone three, one person does like one minute maximum reps and another person might do 10 minute maximum reps. So, and they're, they all kind of fit into the same, I guess, definition of the model. I think the other thing to remember or think about is polarized training is about that distribution, but it's looked at in the literature, both from power distribution, but then also heart rate distribution. So there are polarized models that when they look at the training distribution, like Nate was talking about, they're actually just looking at a three zone heart rate model. And again, you can get that distribution doing a lot of different stuff on the bike if you're just looking at a heart rate distribution. Because again, that highest intensity sort of anaerobic work, you don't have that linear relationship with heart rate. It's just above a certain more like threshold heart rate, you're, you're above that. And you can get to that a lot of different ways. So it's really, even when you're talking about polarized training, and it is just a, a distribution model of lots of high, no middle, lots of low, you need to know like, okay, are we talking about power? Are we talking about heart rate? Are we talking about pace if it's for running? So I think it's really important to, to clarify that because I think if you look at most well thought out or planned like training plans out there or coaching philosophies, there are easy days and there are hard days. And it's always people go too hard on their easy days, so they can't go hard enough on their hard days. Like now you can have a bunch of threshold in there. You could have endurance in there. So it wouldn't fall under like the scholarly definition of polarized training. But the idea of being do the easy work and do the hard work is is the same and, and should permeate pretty much every training philosophy. So in, in some respects, is a polarized approach very complex in terms of you can go to a lab and you can do lactate tests and you can do, and you can do ventilation testing. But then... On the other hand, it can also be a really accessible way to train because you might not necessarily have a power meter, but you have a heart rate monitor. And that, as you say, you can measure, you can use that to measure when you're going easy and when you're not going easy, when you're going absolutely flat out, your heart rate can't catch up anyway. Yeah. So, and, and I do think that's the, the simplicity aspect of it, I think is attractive to a lot of people. It's just, it's a binary system. Like there's the middle ground you're not supposed to be in. So I'm either in the right zone or I'm not because I can be doing low intensity or I can be doing high intensity. And I shouldn't be doing medium intensity. So it, it can it can be simpler. And, and again, like, you know, depending on where you live, the terrain you have, maybe it's really difficult to do some types of workouts. So it really does just work out to go hard at these two minute climbs and then easy on some flat parts. Like it can be just a more laid back approach of trying to analyze stuff, but still keep it in a still do something that's what I would call correct or at least not just riding just to ride. Now, you mentioned earlier that you have 30 riders in the team, so clearly there's going to be quite a lot of variation across those 30 riders. But would you say a polarised approach to training, at least, is something that a lot of riders do follow, or is that too much of a generalisation? I'd say it's it's true when we talk about frequency of hard days and easy days. I think that that's pretty... I think we see pretty consistently that that just works well. And, I mean, it's like Max said, it just makes sense. If you spend too much time going kind of hard then the days you want to go really hard might might suffer. And also, you probably can't go really hard five days in a week and have it be productive. So I wouldn't say we're working hardcore in sort of a three-zone polarized system where it's like we never stay in that second zone. We definitely have quite a few riders that do spend quite a bit of their training in that second zone with purpose, not really on accident, but because that's the prescription and the goal. So in, in that way, we're not going full the direction of like, 
a really polarized system. Um, but in terms of the frequency of hard days, easy days, yeah, I think there's a lot to get from that. I, I do have a, a question for you, Nate. How does that kind of the distribution you look at, how does that change for a rider who, I guess I don't know, like what's the range of race days that some of them on, on your team has? Like you mentioned 60 to 70. I'm assuming some have fewer and I'm assuming some have more. And so that must, obviously those race days are going to be hard. So I'm just curious how that sort of impacts things. Yeah, exactly. The range of race days is probably more like 50 to 80. I mean, you're always going to have outliers where something someone was sick and missed a lot of race days in a year but remove those and people are pretty much racing always at least 50 and not really racing above 80 for the most part in the in the modern era yeah 60 to 70 is kind of a good target but yeah i mean the race days are hard days which is something we always have to remember because i think it's really easy to get caught up in like trying to do specific training in a period where you're actually having a lot of that stimulus because you just did a seven-day stage race, then had a week off, and then have another seven-day stage race. So like on one hand, you'd think, oh, okay, this is kind of the period we're in, train to the demands of that event. But then that week between, we would almost probably completely get away from that stuff. So obviously you do a seven-day stage race, you totally lose any concept of sort of like an 80-20 sort of intensity distribution in terms of like hard days, easy days. But then I think what we do is try and zoom out and it's more about how it like fits into the periodization of the year, you know? So you've got like a racing period that might be, it might be as short as four weeks. It might last kind of as long as eight weeks. And then we say, okay, they've been like mostly racing. So they're getting a lot of intensity and now they almost need like a long enough period away from racing to like let that intensity soak in, just do the low intensity stuff, kind of rebuild the base but also get some benefit from that racing. Uh, like a lot of times, first race block of the year, no matter how well you prepare, you can be good, but then with the adequate rest and sort of break from intensity, a lot of our riders are then better the next race block. Um, so I think you get a huge benefit from that intensity if you create the space to get away from it. It's been really interesting there to hear about a polarized approach to both training zones and, and training itself, and also at the pro level, the impact of race days on training and on individual riders. But Mac, I wanted to come back to you because something that you mentioned at the start was both the polarized approach to training zones, but also a pacing approach to training zones. So just before we wrap up, can you touch a little bit on that and how someone might use a different approach to power and to polarized? I mean, pace-based approach is, is generally speaking, you're going to be doing that if you're doing running or swimming. The one caveat and one that I have a lot of personal experience in is on the track. You're on the track on the velodrome. You're not allowed to have a, a power meter in front of you. And, and when you do intervals, you're doing them based off of a specific lap split. And again, those, those are sessions where you have it intent. There's, you're going for like an overpaced 4K and underpaced 4K. You can do overgeared, undergeared. But when you talk about, yeah, using those pace zones, it's just having another sort of metric to go off of. Like the thing with pace zones on the track is it really doesn't matter what your power is if one rider is smaller than the other. If you're in a team pursuit, you guys all need to be going the same speed. So sure, one of you is doing more power than the other one, but at the end of the day, the speed is all that matters. And I think that can be similar to I mean, it's it's more variable, like out if you're doing training for a time trial or something, but just the controlled nature of the track makes it really, all that's pace-based. And it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what your heart rate is, what your power is. It's just, can you hold the pace or can you not? So that's, I think that's where, at least for cycling, that's where it really comes in. 
It's interesting that you mentioned time trials there because sometimes after a time trial, we might hear on, at the Tour de France, for example, we might hear of a rider who hasn't used a power meter or hasn't used a heart rate monitor in a time trial for a variety of reasons. Is that quite common? And is the key there that the rider really understands their body and the pacing that they need to produce based on their fatigue at the time? Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. I mean, we think that the power meter and the heart rate strap are pretty useful tools. And on our end, like on the coaching performance team, we always want the data. So even if a rider doesn't want to see it, we'd rather they use the power meter and not have power on the screen so we can at least analyze the performance a bit better. The heart rate strap's a bit trickier. Like some guys feel like it is a bit uncomfortable and it might constrict their breathing a bit. And I, I totally get it. So I think some days just heart rate strap not in time trials is totally fine. But I think the interesting thing about like when to use the data from a pacing perspective and when not to use it is the is the context. Like if it's the last time trial in a three-week tour, you might be better off not using the data. It depends a bit on the rider because you can have a rider that's old enough that they have a good body of data built up and you even have data from within the race from like, oh, here's where you were on this hard climb a few days ago. It looks like the legs are still good. So like, here's the target. But the target might need to be analyzed like way more broadly of like, okay, you're carrying a lot of fatigue. It's sort of uncharted territory. The best thing you can do is kind of get away from the numbers because it could be that the coach sets the target too low because they don't want the athlete to blow up and you don't want to be holding yourself back when you actually have good legs and can do more. And on the other hand, it could be that everyone's really tired and they're 20 watts below the target. But in relation to the rest of the field, they're actually going really, really good because it's been a hard race and everyone's tired. So there's definitely a balance between like using all the data we have to build a pacing plan, but also sort of giving the rider the confidence that they need to just take it as this reference point and try and focus a lot on building the intrinsic awareness of like their own pacing and their own response. Because the last thing you want to do is feel like you had a good handle on how you were feeling, but you blew up chasing a number and you could have ridden 20 watts slower and been competitive in relation to the field or that you could have done more, but you were kind of, oh, I better stick to the pacing plan. That's going to be right. The context is like always shifting. It's so different than like what Mac was saying in the track. You have like way more repeated scenarios where I think to a pretty high degree of confidence, you can say like, this is what we think we can do. A lot of variables are controlled. Let's go out there and do it. Like in the, in the road racing, it's always like, it's always a different course. Some days it's a one day TT, other days it's stage 15 time trial. So it's like, it's harder to say like, based on the data we have, you can definitely do this because you don't get so many repeat data points. It's interesting there as well. You mentioned the interaction between tech and training zones or, or tech and the data that's presented to a rider and the fact that you might want to collect power data from a time trial, but the rider might not want it on the screen. Because I wanted to ask you, Mac, in terms of everyday riders going out there for a Sunday group ride or starting a training plan, how can someone use the tech at their disposal, whether that's a Wahoo bike computer or a smart trainer, to use their training zones as effectively as possible what what can they how can they use that tech as a guide yeah i think uh, again it depends on what what lever you're at and uh i guess how big your wallet is because tech's cool but it can be pretty pretty pricey at times i think first and foremost for riding outside a gps computer is great i know there are plenty of, of smartphones that like you can just run strava on your phone 
but having a, a computer to display some of those metrics just to get you used to seeing them can be really helpful. I think heart rate for sure is the best entry point for most people because heart rate straps can be relatively cheap and, and they're quite reliable. And so that gives you a really good reference point of, okay, how hard was that ride that I did? And if you can pair that up with maybe you don't have a power meter outside, but you have a smart trainer and you can see power inside, you can sort of see, okay, what is my power to heart rate look like inside? And you can sort of extrapolate. So, okay, when I go right outside, I know that around 145 beats per minute is going to be about 200-ish watts. And like, that's what I'm supposed to go do for these intervals today. So you can have reference point. You don't need the all the tech in every position, as long as you have just some overlap with with one of them. And I think heart rate would be the the primary one there. Obviously, having power pedals on the bike or just a, a crank-based power meter outside is great. I'd always say if you have an indoor trainer with power and you have an outdoor power meter, you want to do a ride or two with both of those running because oftentimes, right, they say the accuracy is like plus or minus one and a half percent, two percent. One might be two percent high and one might be two percent low. And so like you might have a bit of a difference there. So just just having knowing that getting the cross reference points is really helpful. But really, I mean, any tech on that side, it's like is something if it's something you're willing to do repeatedly, if you're going to get a heart rate strap and wear it twice and never use it again, it's probably not a great investment. But if you're willing to just put it on and collect a couple months worth of data and you can go back and, and look at that, it can be really insightful to what you what you have been doing and maybe give you clarity on how to how to change tactic if you're not quite getting to where you want to be. Well, I think that's a really good place to end things. We're coming up to the hour. Just to finish with you, Nate, what's next for you and the team? We're entering the off season. So what, what are your plans over the coming months? Yeah, right now is actually a big time with the team. We're doing a lot of planning. So you're starting to plan the rider race programs together with the sports directors and start carving out those big periods of, okay, what's this person's target going to be? What are going to be the racing periods? What are the sort of periods off of racing they need in between those race blocks to retrain? Backing that out, what kind of training camps are we looking at? And yeah, so that's this time of year. And then in four weeks, five weeks, we have our first training camp of the year, which isn't a really super intensive camp in terms of training. It's more about just getting everyone together and checking a bunch of stuff off the list that needs to be done, like medical checkups and strength and conditioning screens. And that's us. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really nice. And Mac, I know you'll be back for our next episode next week, but it's been great to have you on again. What's the plan for you and Wahoo over the coming weeks? Ooh, there's some really cool stuff that I probably am not supposed to talk about, but I will be in Atlanta for a couple weeks at our uh, headquarters with some of the other folks from the data science team coming over from Europe to sort of plan out what we've got going on. I will say that there's um, a lot of fun stuff in the works, but I can't, I don't want to get in trouble by revealing too much. Maybe by the fifth episode, we can get into it. Exactly. Maybe we can quiz you on a, on a future episode. We do have two episodes left, but Mac, really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, as always, it was, it was great, to, great to be on. Well, do join us for that next episode. And if you haven't listened to the first two episodes in this series, make sure you listen to those two. Make sure that you leave us a rating on your podcast platform at Choice. It really helps us get this pod out to other people just like you. Nate, Mac, we'll leave it there. It's been super interesting to get both of your perspectives, including all of that insight into how well tour riders train. 
And thank you for tuning in. Please do leave us a rating on your podcast platform of choice and send us an email to podcast at bikeradar.com with any feedback, suggestions or questions. Otherwise, we'll speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 